What is a painting? The image of the subject? The style of the artist? Hi, my name's Jean Dalmermuth, and as a paintings conservator, I see them as physical objects, how they're made, and everything that's happened to them since. Let me show you what I see, and you'll never look at a painting the same way again. Once the painter has made that first layer of the layer cake, the support, which with these early Italian paintings is usually a wooden panel, then they can apply the next layer, the ground. That gets applied all over the support without thinking about any design that's going to come later. Most paintings have a ground layer, and that layer plays a big part in how the painting looks and how it ages, but it usually doesn't get a lot of attention. In part, that's because it's the most difficult layer to see. It's going to be sandwiched in between the support and the paint. The ground in any painting serves a few different functions. First, it seals up the support a bit, making it less porous. If you think about just having a bare piece of wood and you put a drop of water or oil on the surface, it would soak in. But to make a painting, you need the paint to sit on the surface. So just like you might prime a piece of wood or a wall before painting, so do painters. Sometimes this ground layer is called priming or preparation for exactly this reason. Different words used for this layer can have different specific meanings. The word ground is the general term and can always be used to refer to this layer in any painting. The ground layer for early Italian panels is more specifically called gesso. That word gets used for other things, notably what's called acrylic gesso, which was introduced in the middle of the 20th century and is actually a very different thing than this traditional gesso used for early Italian paintings. We'll get to acrylic gesso later on. In addition to making the support less porous, the ground layer is also going to affect the overall color and texture of the painting. With this school of painting, the goal was to have a perfectly smooth, white surface to paint on. Other schools of painting are going to have different types and colors and textures of grounds, and that's going to be a big part of why they look different. When Cennino was writing about the process of making a panel painting for Il Libro dell'Arte, written about 1400, he spent a lot of time on how to make and apply gesso, and it's something that apprentices would have practiced over and over until they could get it just right. That was key, especially for the gilding, which is so important to these paintings, to look good, because the gilding will show any irregularity in texture, any scratch, any bubble in the gesso. Like all the materials of paintings, and everything else at this point in history, the gesso was made out of natural materials, animal, vegetable, and mineral. The wood of the panel support is vegetable. The gesso of the ground is animal and mineral natural materials that had to be processed a bit, altered a bit, in order to make them useful. And stay with me, I'm going to go through this step by step. There are two main components of gesso, animal glue and ground calcium sulfate. The ground calcium sulfate is a fine white powder, and it's going to be held, or you could say bound, by the animal glue. This is a concept we'll see later on when we talk about paint, which is also a finely divided solid bound in a liquid medium, which can also be called the binder. With both gesso and paint, 
you mix those two components, one solid, one liquid, together. Then you apply that mixture onto a surface, here the panel, and then the liquid solidifies, locking in the solid particles. So the first part is the animal glue, and yes, it's made from animals. With the old joke about sending an old horse to the glue factory, this is what they meant. And I realize that this may be hard to hear and hard to think about, but thinking about it, remember that in previous centuries, there was a goal to waste as little as possible. So when an animal was butchered for meat, there were parts that couldn't be eaten, and those were used for other things. The hide, for example, would be processed into leather. And some of those parts, sometimes skins, sometimes bones and cartilage, could be processed into glue. Chinino specifically mentions making goat glue out of the muzzles, tendons, and feet of the animal. You'll hear this referred to as animal glue, or maybe rabbit skin glue, hide glue, or bone glue, depending on which parts or which type of animal were used. It can also sometimes be called size. The parts of the animal that are used for this glue contain a protein called collagen. Now, there are lots of different kinds of proteins, and they work in different ways, and we'll talk about other types of proteins when we get to the paint layer, but they're all made up of smaller compounds called amino acids. In collagen specifically, those amino acids are twisted together into long strands, sort of like twisting together wool into yarn. In the living animal, collagen is what holds the animal up and together. But if collagen-containing parts of an animal are soaked in water and then the water is heated up, those strands of collagen will untwist and come apart and float around in the water. They'll dissolve. And the technical term for this process is hydrolysis. Some parts won't dissolve and those are strained out. Once the solution is taken off the heat and it cools down, those individual strands don't go back into their previous orderly arrangement. They kind of tangle up together like a big mass of wool fibers. Even though all of the water is still there, it's basically a solid substance, a gel. And some kinds of animal glue are called gelatin. If the water is then allowed to evaporate, it becomes a really solid substance. Depending on what kind of animal glue it is, it could have slightly different properties. It may be translucent like glass, or more opaque and milky so that you can't see through it. It may be really stiff, or a bit flexible. It probably has a slightly yellow or brownish color to it. But after it's dried, it's pretty shelf-stable. It can be stored somewhere, and then, whenever it's needed, put back in water, and after a while it will swell and gel up again. And then, if that is heated up, it will re-dissolve into a liquid again. And that can be done many times over. And you may well have done this yourself, if you've ever made jello, because that's what it is. The powder is mostly ground up gelatin. When you add hot water, it dissolves, and when you cool that again, it gels again. Animal glue is exactly the same, just without the sugar flavoring and coloring. Animal glue can be used as a glue, if you spread it, while it's still dissolved and warm, on one surface, and then press another surface onto that while it cools and dries. It dries as a film that's stuck to both surfaces, and thus they're stuck to each other. 
Humans have been using animal glue as an adhesive for thousands of years, even long before it was used in the making of caskets for mummified Egyptian pharaohs. Often, the first step in preparing the support for a painting is to brush a layer of this animal glue all over, over the whole surface that has been built up of different pieces of wood to make all of the different planes of the painting. Sometimes, but not always, the next step could be to glue pieces of canvas or parchment over all or parts of the support. A painter might do that as an extra reinforcement, especially over the joins where two planks meet up or over knots in the wood. It can be confusing when you're examining a painting closely because sometimes you might see a bit of canvas peeking through at the edge of a panel or where there's a loss of ground and paint, but that painting is really on panel. You could knock on it like knocking on a door. The canvas is just glued to it for extra support. So say if the joins move a little, it may be less likely to make a crack in the layers above. So then to make the actual gesso, the painter would mix ground calcium sulfate into that animal glue. Calcium sulfate, also called gypsum, is a mineral that you can dig up out of the earth in stone quarries. It's found in many places and throughout Italy, so it's fairly easy to get. In modern chemical terms, it's a molecule made of one calcium atom, one sulfur atom, and four oxygen atoms. It's a kind of soft rock that's essentially white or off-white, and it's used for all sorts of things, as a fertilizer, in brewing beer, and making tofu. But for early Italian painters, it was a main component of the gesso ground layer. Or really the gesso layers, because this is going to be applied in multiple layers, first with one kind of gesso, and on top of that, a second finer kind. The gypsum could just be ground up and added to the animal glue, but generally it was processed further to make it even better. So technically, gypsum is actually calcium sulfate dihydrate. The dihydrate part means that there are two water molecules bound to each of those mineral molecules. Dihydrate from di meaning two and hydro meaning water. So each of those calcium sulfate molecules has two water molecules sort of holding onto it. And under normal circumstances, they won't evaporate off. But if it's heated up enough, the water will be driven off, creating calcium sulfate anhydrite, an meaning no, there's no water bound to it. This transformation only happens at very high temperatures, over 350 degrees Fahrenheit or 180 degrees Celsius, in a kiln like firing ceramics. So a fair amount of time and energy goes into processing this natural material. It's that calcium sulfate anhydrite Chinino recommends grinding up and adding to the animal glue for the first type of gesso, which he calls gesso grosso or big gesso. This is fairly bulky, and compared to what's going to come later, a bit coarse. The grains are fairly big. But that's useful, because the ground layer needs to be built up a fair amount, and the gesso grosso helps get there quickly. Remember, the painter is trying to create high quality as efficiently as possible. For the second type of gesso, which Chinino calls gesso sottile, fine or subtle gesso, he says the painter should take that calcium sulfate anhydrite and soak it in water for weeks or even months. And this is a process that we call slaking. 
Chinino describes what happens as the stone rotting away, becoming very fine, as soft as silk, he writes. I've tried doing this in a kind of quick and dirty way, and he's right. What you get is calcium sulfate dihydrate again, but this time as a very fine powder, finer than you would ever be able to grind by hand. You can kind of think of these two different gessos, gesso grosso and gesso sottile, as different grits of sandpaper. One fairly coarse that can remove a lot of the material you're sanding quickly, and one very fine that puts a final polish on your work. Even mixing the gesso together is something that has to be done with care. The glue has to be warm to be liquid, but not too hot, or it'll be cooked and become useless. And it also requires the right ratio of calcium sulfate to animal glue. Too much glue makes it really brittle, too much calcium sulfate, and it'll be crumbly. The painter also has to be careful not to stir it too vigorously, or it'll sort of froth up and there'll be bubbles in the mixture, bubbles that'll end up as pockmarks on the surface. So you can think of all of this a bit like baking a cake. Everything has to be done very precisely, or the whole thing can be ruined. Once the two components are mixed together, both of these type of gesso are basically the consistency of heavy cream or drinkable yogurt, and that liquid is brushed on the wooden panel. The panel might well be laid flat to have the gesso applied, and that gesso might drip over the side edge a bit. And that can be a very useful clue to anyone examining the panel now, because if you see a drip on the edge, you know that that's an original edge of the panel that that edge hasn't been cut down later, which, as I'll talk about in a later episode, has often happened to these panel supports. The gesso is built up in layers, first with several layers of gesso grosso, and then with layers of gesso sottile. In between, the layers have to dry enough so that when the next is brushed on, it doesn't mess up the underlayer. But they can't be too dry, or they won't bond together well and how quickly the layers dry is very dependent on the climate. And realizing that these workshops didn't have central heating or air conditioning, that's really dependent on the weather. And Chinino recommends applying gesso when it's dry and windy, when the water in the gesso would evaporate more quickly. All of these kinds of things, the proportions needed, the timing of the application, the physical gestures of doing it, would be learned during an apprenticeship, and it took years to really master gessoing a panel. Sometimes today, conservators in training, and mostly that now happens at universities at the graduate level, will make replicas of paintings to better understand how they're made. And making gesso is usually a surprisingly frustrating step in recreating an early Italian panel. Even if you understand theoretically how to do it, it takes a lot of practice to do it really well. As I said, this gesso is built up in layers until the whole ground layer is quite substantial. Sometimes if you're examining a painting and there are chip losses down to the wood, you can see how thick the gesso is. On the little Duccio Madonna and Child at the Metropolitan Museum of Art that we've seen before, there are a few chip losses where you can see that the gesso is about a quarter of an inch thick. But the thickness varies a bit because it's thinner on the high points of the wooden molding around the edge, but it puddled a bit in the valleys between those high points. Clearly, this panel was laid flat when the gesso was applied. The gesso puddled, but it also didn't dry perfectly flat. Kind of like the frosting on a cake, it dries with a sort of wavy surface, which isn't what the painter wanted. 
So once it's dry, the gesso gets scraped down with a straight edge blade. It's this scraping that may reveal any bubbles that were in the gesso. They would have created air pockets that, if they're scraped into, are exposed as little pits. It's fairly easy to scrape. The gesso ends up being about as hard as blackboard chalk. It can be scratched with a fingernail. The trick is to get it perfectly flat across the whole surface. And Chinino has a clever technique for doing that. He advises the painter to brush charcoal dust on the surface, and he describes doing this with a feather, before scraping. As the knife scrapes down, the charcoal dust, black on white so it's easy to see, will be scraped off the high points, but will remain in the low parts. The process may need to be repeated, but when there's no more charcoal on the surface, it's flat. In terms of not wasting anything, Chinino advises saving those scrapings because they can be used for other things, like degreasing parchment. But these paintings aren't just about being flat. With early Italian panels, there's always this sort of push to make them more three-dimensional, almost like low-relief sculpture. So just like the wooden molding was added during the panel-making stage to add more dimensional interest, sometimes painters also used gesso to build up forms raised up from the surface. This again is a bit like decorating a cake, making three-dimensional forms with frosting, except that the gesso isn't as thick as frosting is, it's only about as thick as yogurt, so it will slump, which means that it may well be built up in layers too, applying some, letting it dry, then adding more until it's high enough. Because this is built up out of this thick liquid material, it tends to form fairly soft, rounded shapes. If the painter wanted, these could be sharpened up by carving them after they were dry. These built-up forms are called pastilla, meaning pastework, because they're made from this kind of pasty material. Sometimes this pastilla is used to make low-relief crowns or other jewels worn by figures. And sometimes those can be further embellished by pushing in pieces of colored glass while the gesso is still soft. Then once the gesso dries and is ultimately gilded, those pieces of glass look like jewels set in metalwork. Pastelia can also be used to divide off different areas of the painting surface, creating individual spaces for the many different figures who inhabit it. In a Madonna and Child painted by Simone Martini that's in the collection of the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum in Boston, Pastelia is used to build a little arcade across the bottom, a row of arches on twisted columns, and under each arch is a small figure of a saint. Simone used Pastelia in lots of different ways. In his Annunciation at the Uffizi in Florence, he used it to make the letters that spell out the greeting of the angel Gabriel to Mary. This was then gilded, and so imagining that you're seeing this in flickering candlelight, the words, Ave Grazia Plena, are shimmering low relief in gold, something you catch the sense of, the presence of, without them being quite as blunt, quite as earthly, as if they were written out in color. Simone is particularly well known for his elaborate surfaces, but this technique was widely used. Fifty years after Simone, Spinello Aretino, who was from Arezzo rather than Siena, used Pastilia both to create architecture to surround figures and to spell out their names in a large and complex altarpiece that was probably made around 1385 for the Abbey of Monte Oliveto Maggiore in Tuscany. Two panels from that altarpiece, one representing St. Philip, the other probably St. James the Greater, 
are at the Metropolitan Museum of Art, and I'd like to thank a former student of mine, Alexa Klein, for pointing them out to me. There are many other panels from the same altarpiece those two came from, panels in many collections around the world. One of the technical details that links them, one of the clues about their origin, is a similar use of pastilia. On pastilia or other rounded forms that couldn't be scraped down with a flat blade, the painter might smooth the surface with a wet rag, because the animal glue in the gesso will swell and ultimately dissolve in water. The wet rag softens the surface enough to be smoothed out. Once it was applied and smoothed, the gesso made a continuous surface over the different pieces of wood that were joined together and completely covered up the texture of the wood. On top of it, the gold and paint would then be applied, and those steps I'll talk about in the next episodes. The gold and paint would have completely covered the gesso, so that originally you wouldn't have been aware of it at all, even though it's so important to how the surface looks. But a lot has happened since those paintings were made maybe 700 years ago. One thing that may have happened is that the gesso may have cracked. You may have a whole network of cracks all over the painting, visible as fine dark lines. You may be able to see, if you look closely, that these aren't actually lines on the surface, but rather where the gesso has cracked and pulled apart so that it's not a continuous surface anymore. The cracks look dark both because of this roughness and because there's dirt and other substances embedded in them. The edges of the cracks may pull up a little bit, but generally the gesso is still solidly stuck onto the wood panel and it doesn't actually fall off. Sometimes, though, the bond between the gesso and the wood fails, and part of the gesso and the gilding and paint on top of it may be lost. What causes the gesso to crack is that the wood underneath will expand and contract a bit with changes in relative humidity. That's just because of what it is, the body of a tree made up of cellulose molecules. That cellulose is hygroscopic, which is the technical word meaning that it takes up and gives off water molecules from the air. It will do that until the water content inside the wood is in balance without outside of it. So basically, in humid weather, wood takes up water from the air, and in dry weather, it gives it off. When weather forecasts talk about relative humidity, it's given as a percentage. It's the percentage of water in the air relative to how much water the air can hold. So in 100% relative humidity, the air is completely saturated with water. It can't take up any more. If you hang up wet clothes when the relative humidity is really high, they won't dry because there's nowhere for the water to go. But relative humidity is also linked to temperature because warmer air can hold more water than colder air can. So if you have a given volume of air with a given number of water molecules in it, and you heat up that air, you lower the relative humidity, which is why clothes dryers heat up, and also why when you turn on the heat in your home in winter, your skin gets dry. Because you start with cold air with a certain amount of water in it, and then it becomes warmer with the same amount of water but that warmer air can hold more, so the relative humidity goes down. When wood takes in moisture from the air, when the relative humidity is high, it swells, it actually gets bigger, because those water molecules themselves have substance, they take up space. When the relative humidity goes down, 
the wood gives up the water molecules and shrinks. So anything made out of wood, including the panel of an early Italian painting, is perpetually shrinking and swelling a bit. Maybe you've had the experience of a door that sticks in wet weather or floorboards that shrink up in dry weather. But in the case of these panel paintings, there's gesso on top of that wood. And it doesn't shrink and swell to the same degree as the wood. It's fairly rigid and even brittle. The animal glue in it swells a bit, but the calcium sulfate doesn't. So when the wood moves, tension builds up in the gesso layer, it's getting pulled apart, and eventually it breaks, opening up a crack. That crack starts out quite small, but over hundreds of years and many cycles of swelling and shrinking, the crack expands, getting wider and also branching off, and sometimes the cracks meet up with each other and create a whole network. If the gesso cracks, so will the golden paint on top of it. Some paintings have lots of cracks, others fewer, but generally any painting that's fairly old will have cracks, and we expect them to. That's part of what makes an old painting look old. If different pieces of wood making up the panel move differently, and they're likely to because each has its own internal structure determined by how it grew as a tree, the gesso may crack along these joins. Painters knew this might happen, and that was why Cennino advised adding the textile layer between the wood and the gesso. It helps prevent this cracking. Cracking often happens where the molding, which is a separate wood strip, meets the main panel, or the corners of the molding where two pieces meet. That's what happened with the little Duccio Madonna at the Met that we've seen before. The joins in the wood are now apparent. Something even more extreme has happened to the predella panel from the Santa Reparata altarpiece at the Met that we've talked about before, something that doesn't have to do with relative humidity. The edges of that painting reveal the bare wood. That's because originally there was a wood molding there. It divided the different scenes in the predella from each other. That molding and the whole panel was covered with gesso, which was then gilded and painted. When the individual scenes of the predella were cut apart to be sold as individual paintings, the molding was taken off, and so the gesso on top of it was removed as well. Probably the person who did that then put it in a separate frame, the kind of frame with a rabbit that covers up the edges of the panel, and the bare wood didn't show. Now, the mat chooses to display it without a frame, a frame that wasn't original, and so was kind of misleading. So you can see not only the wood, but also the thickness of the gesso, that the image is slightly raised off the surface of the wood by the thickness of that gesso. But thinking back to when all of these paintings were being made, once the gesso was applied and smoothed, the surface was completely continuous, smooth, and white, and was ready for the design to be applied with gold and colors. That had already been planned out, and the scale of the whole work and the divisions within it had already been set up by the support and the ground. That is to say, the painter and the patron had already decided on the question, what is this? As always, you can find images of the paintings I've mentioned on my website. You'll find the address in the description of the podcast. It's jeandalmermuth.com slash podcast, and that's spelled J-E-A-N-D-O-M-M-E-R-M-U-T-H. I hope you'll take a look.
The music you hear is 1600 in Vienna by Sujay Govindaraj, and I found it on Tribe of Noise. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.